just saw a terrible piece of uh, graffiti on the subway wall the other day. It's just terrible. Herb, are you ready for this? Terrible piece of graffiti. <laughs> Down on 23rd Street, the subway, it says, Help find a cure for cassettes. <laughs> oh, yeah, they you break out all over with them, you know. It's awful, you know. Hey, uh, I, I, uh, I don't know quite how to approach this, but I'm just going to approach it head on. I think that's the only way to do it, right? Truth, right? It's the truth time, right? And uh, what I'm going to do is approach it right head on. And it is this, that there's been a great wave of discontent among my... Uh, my uh, hey, what happened to this? Oh, somebody, I, Martha Dean stepped on my nose food again. It's, it's every time I leave it in the studio. Well... Nevertheless, uh, uh, there has been a great wave of discontent that has swept uh, the uh, victims out there, and, and uh, it, it's been reflected recently in the mail. Oh, yes, there were three people picketing the station the other day. It says, what, the, what, you know, what, what happened, Shepard? Have, have you given up the Jews harp? Have you given up singing the Sheik of Araby? No, I have not. I certainly have not. In fact, I've been preserving this uh, God-given talent for uh, appropriate moments. And I do not, one does not give up one's uh, life drive, not at all. So, I mean, so I drive, let's go. <clears throat> yeah, oh yeah, let's go it all together. I'm the chief of A, of B. <laughs> Your love belongs to me. Up, 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 at night when you're asleep. Yeah, we do your tears of sleep. Up, 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 stars that shine above. We'll light our way to love, 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 love. You'll lose this land with me. Ba, 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 da, ba. Cheek, cheek, cheek of air, rubby, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm the cheek of air, rubby. Your love belongs to me. Ba, 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 da, ba. The stars that shine above. We'll light our way to love. Ba, 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 unqualified applause in that control room. Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, let John Gambling try that. And you notice, you notice that one of the one of the uh, 
one of the hallmarks of true talent. And uh, I might as well, you know, bring it right out in the open. Uh, don't go, Ron. I want you to hear this. One of the hallmarks of true talent is the ease with which it is consummated. Now, for example, you've watched Jack Nicklaus play golf. He doesn't sweat. He doesn't stand there and have to walk around. And he just walks up there and hits that thing, right? You notice how easy Tom Seaver makes it look, right? Yes, well, that's the ease. It's ease. It's no sweat. And you notice how easily I sing this. They just pop it out. Let's just say one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. No. <laughs> all right, Herb. That's all right. That's all right, Herb. Okay. No, no. Keep keep the romantic stuff up. I got something going here. You know, uh, once in a great while, uh, uh, now I, I, I must point out something very quickly here. This is not everybody's dish of tea or cup of tea or whatever it is you want to call it. But uh, I'm going to do something very special here tonight. You know, I really am. And before we do it, uh, I would like to... Uh, let's let's get a couple of these commercials out of the way before we do it so that we can do it uh, with a minimum of hassle. Uh, so right away, I think what I'm going to do is do... Uh, how about uh, Portuguese Airline? How about that, huh? That's right. Uh, have a little uh, Portuguese music there, get you set up right, huh? Friends in Portugal, they don't put your name up in lights, so you can have it done in tile if you like. I mean, if you got that kind of ego. <laughs> That's true. Oh, kitty, you can have the little tiles made with your name, you know, and you can have your old bathroom tiled that way. TAP, the Intercontinental Airline of Portugal, and uh, you, you listen to the chief here, has a two-week royal treatment tour of Portugal and Spain... Now, these are two really unusual countries. If you, you can travel all over Europe, you know, and, and you, you, you tend to get the feeling like, uh, well, you know, it's, uh, you've seen so much of uh, France and England and all in the movies and so forth. You have a tendency to feel like you're almost home when you go to these places. Let me tell you, friend, Portugal, particularly Portugal and Spain, that's something else again. And for $453, they'll take you all over Spain and Portugal on a tour, the royal treatment tour. And that's, that means you're on your own, you know. You're not, you're not in a little crowd with tags all over you. And uh, you'll see Lisbon, you'll see Madrid. And for two weeks, you will, man, you'll go all the way. And uh, that includes, by the way, that $453 includes uh, economy, airfare, the transportation, the whole bit both ways. So you call your travel agent. Or you call TAP at 421. That number is 421. That's in New York, of course. 421-8500. For complete details, that's $453 for two weeks, including round-trip economy airfare. Oh, yeah. Yeah, thank you, Herbert. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I could use that, you know. We always... It's, 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 uh, it's not... We get a hum in this studio sometimes. It's not on the air. It's okay. It's on the monitor in here. It's all right for that, so don't turn it up. Hey, we have a note here. If you've got any problems with blemished skin, and uh, that's no joke if you have it, uh, excess oiliness, blackheads, and so forth, uh, well, then you, you should know about this. Zip Kit by Dermacon Laboratories for troubled skin. And it comes. it's a kit with three new products. It's a treatment kit for acne and all kinds of problems. It's been tested by leading dermatologists. And it comes in a kit, three of these products. First of all, you get the skin cleanser, which you should use. Uh, after that, you use Dermacon medicated lotion during the day. 
It dries up all his problems. And then at night, when you're about to hit the sack, Dermacon medicated cream, and uh, that works all night. It uh, does not have any harsh peeling agents. It's around-the-clock care, and uh, it's, a, it's a good product, according to all the people who have tested it. It's called Dermacon Zit Kit, Z-I-T-K-I-T. And you can try it for 30 days, and you'll see the difference. And you can buy it at Genovese, Whalen, Mac, Drug Guild, and other leading pharmacies. That's Dermacon Zit Kit. Give it a whirl. Hi, this is Leonard Nimoy. Sounds of the forest. Birds devouring insects. A deer munching tender vegetation in a clearing. Precious water from the rains and melting snow being collected, stored, and channeled downstream. A truck stacked high with logs on the way to the sawmill to become homes, furniture, newspapers, and thousands of other products. And people. Yes, people are part of the forest community. We need the forest for fun, rest, and inspiration. Write for your free copy of Forest Ecology and You, Society of American Foresters, Washington, D.C., 20036. Address Society of American Foresters, 1010 16th Street, Northwest, Washington, D.C., 20036. Okay, now, we're back in business here. Now, what I'm going to talk about, <laughs> it's, just, it's just something I've always wanted to talk about. Um, and uh, it's something only a few people know about. So, uh, so be prepared. Either, either this will turn you off or either you'll say, gee, this is you know, great. And it's this. I don't know how many people among you, I'm one of them, I'm afraid, uh, who are afflicted with the, the romance of airports syndrome. Now, I'm not talking about airports like JFK. I'm not talking about the LaGuardia. These are, these are big international air terminals. It's not the same thing. I'm talking about airports. Uh, there are certain airports when you visit them, and I, and I say this as a pilot. Uh, in fact, there are many small airports when you fly into these airports overhanging the entire area, just, just like a, a, a quiet umbrella, is a curious bittersweet aroma of an odd kind of technological age romance. Very, very strange kind of romance. Now, most, most people have simply not spent any time in small airports, so they don't know about this. And, and what is the romance? Well, uh, just recently, somebody out in uh, one of my spies, who's an old buddy of mine, sent me a note from the Los Angeles Times. You see, I think, I think here in the East, we tend to be far more matter-of-fact about uh, technological things. I don't think, uh, and in fact, we generally look upon them as the enemy. <laughs> it's, it's the enemy. Whereas, when you get out, when you get out further out, uh, out into, into other parts of the country, there is a specific romance about technology. Now, they're also very aware of, of, of pollution and so forth, but there is a, a, a kind of technological romance that is very much related to the romance of the technology of the sea. Now, see, here in the East, we, we have an old tradition of that 
romance. So uh, one of the earliest guys of this kind of Melville, for example, we're talking about uh, Don. Have you ever have you ever done any private flying at all? Well, uh, I'm I'm trying to. We're talking to Don Cricky here, who just wandered into the control room. We're talking about the curious romance, Don, of small airports. There's a there's a vague melancholy romantic air about them. Well, now you keep thinking in terms of the big New York uh, airports. Don't think in terms of say uh, uh, the big one across over here. Uh, just I'm talking about small airports, the single strip, someplace. Now that is far more prevalent in in the east, in in areas like in Pennsylvania, Western Jersey, but in this area, of course, people tend to look upon technology as kind of the enemy, and uh, you know they're very nervous about it. But you go to other parts of the country, and they live at great ease with technological things. An example of that is you go down farther farther south. And the technology and the attitude and the understanding of the automobile far exceeds that of anything in this area. It's no wonder that the great stock car races are all from places like North Carolina uh, and the great mechanics, you see. But uh, uh, I, I flew into an airport here recently, here in the east. And I'm not even going to tell you the name of it because a lot of people would go, will go charging out there and, and destroy it. But uh, that's right. I just flew into this airport as part of a cross-country down. I'm... I'm and, and I, I flew over the airport first, and uh, I'd been told about this airport, and I was curious to see it. And I arrived over the airport. It was a bright, sunny day, and I could see the ocean off to my left. It was just out there. You could just see great sheets of, of sun bouncing off that water out there. And I flew in at about 4,000 feet, and there it was lying below me. It was, it was up on the coast, much uh, not in this immediate area, but not far from New York, but it's lying up on the coast, and she was she was lying down there below me at the 4,000 feet, and I could see all these runways stretched out down there. Hundreds of them. It just seemed to stretch for miles. Great, broad, flat runways. There must have been five or six, maybe seven, major runways and taxiways. No, here's this thing lying out in the middle of the woods. Fantastic airport. Completely deserted. And it was a deserted... 1940s World War II Naval Fighter Squadron Station. This, this airport is just lying there in the sun with nothing on it. Just a few old hangars all mothballed and sealed up. And next to it was a sealed up, completely mothballed. That's it's just like, it's like out of a strange movie. Some, one of these curious English horror pictures, you know, with the, with the nostalgic, bucolic quality. Next to the hangar, which was all sealed up, was a control tower. A World War II control tower, completely sealed up, mothballed. And on top of it were wind direction instruments still working. You could just see them flittering in the wind. WOR New York. Speed indicator. And she just up there, just still working. The wind blowing a pass. And there she sat. Nothing. And I came spiraling down, and I, I came into a final of landing, landing the airplane on this tremendous runway, which was five, six thousand feet long and broad. It was as broad as the Jersey Turnpike. It's a tremendous runway. 
I just laid it down on the numbers, which were very faded. They hadn't been replaced. You could see these faded numbers. And I rolled out. It was just like a strange, ghostly uh, apparition of some kind. The airport didn't even look real. All around, you could see pine trees where they'd been cleared off. And sitting on the runway, way down at the end, there were about six World War II Navy transport planes. Their engines removed, all mothballed and cocooned. Don't worry about that break, Jerry. You, you, you worry too much about that. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I don't care what their regulations are. Don't worry about it, okay? This is WOR New York. <laughs> you know? Okay, everybody all right in there? WOR New York, right? WR New York. Okay. So, uh, now all I need is one, one reminder, Jerry, and after that you don't have to do it anymore. Don't just keep going like this all the time because that only irritates me and I won't do it any earlier. earlier. Okay? <laughs> I hate to give you instructions out of the air, but that's the way it goes. But uh, nevertheless, uh, airports have a curious quality to them. And here's a beautiful piece this guy sent me from uh, Los Angeles. And I'm, I'm going to read this to you. And it's about airports. And it's about a specific airport. And this was written by a writer named Jack Smith. And uh, it came out in the Los Angeles Times. And he starts out by, by uh, just simply coming right on strong. You don't see this kind of stuff in New York newspapers. El Mirage is his first line. El Mirage is a tiny, wind-blown air station in the Mojave Desert. A scatter of weathered shacks and corrugated iron huts in the sand at the edge of Mirage Dry Lake. It has hardly changed since World War II. There are still a couple of open cockpit PT-23s on the ground. It's a training plane, by the way, of World War II. As if when the war ended, the Flyboys had hopped in their 37 Fords and took off for Hollywood and never came back. Headquarters is a one-story faded yellow frame structure with an observation tower. It used to be the guardhouse, they say. It's a cafe now. When we walked in looking for a cup of coffee, it was deserted. But we could smell coffee. And there was a menu on the wall saying hamburgers, 95 cents. The smell of coffee and the price of hamburgers couldn't have been left over from the war. Reminds me of that old movie, said the friend who was with me, with Humphrey Bogart. What was it? There was a movie. Uh, there was a place like this out on the desert in the movie. The Petrified Forest, I said. Did you ever see that movie? Petrified Forest. You ever get a chance to see it? It's a great Humphrey Bogart classic. Yes, Betty Davis had been the waitress in that godforsaken place, and I couldn't have been too surprised if she turned up at this one, bored and restless, a dangerous combination in Miss Davis. The door slammed. It wasn't Betty Davis. It was just a young man who turned out to be the guy running the airport. He heated up the morning coffee. It was strong, but it tasted good, like everything does, actually, in the desert. For 26 years after the war... Uh, Bus or Gus Brigleb or whatever the name is, had run El Mirage as a sailplane airport. And now this group was leasing the place and sprucing it up. Sailplaning is a growing sport, and El Mirage was going to flower. We'd flown in from Burbank in a Piper Apache to take a ride in a sailplane. Six of the world's best sailplane pilots were practicing at El Mirage for the transcontinental sailplane derby. And, uh, this is going to be our chance to fly one, he said. 
Out on the asphalt strip, we found Paul Bickle, the former NASA man, hitching his white metal sailplane to one of the PT-23s with a yellow nylon tow line. The pilot climbed into the old prop plane. Bickle shut himself up in the sailplane under the plastic canopy, and the pilot towed him along the strip till they simply lifted off, took him up to 7,000 feet, and Bickle cut the tow line loose. We watched him fly. He dived and soared and circled, riding the thermal updrafts exactly as gulls and buzzards do, the same thing. There was a half moon in the clear desert sky, pale as a chunk of ice in water, and the sailplane seemed to be playing around the moon. I strained my eyes looking at that flashing white gull in the sky. Gus, the pilot, had come down and was standing beside us. You want to go up there and chase him? He said. I realized he was talking to me. We hiked along the strip to the PT-23. And, and a minute later, we were up, banking and climbing up on the wing and into the rear cockpit. You want a, sh- want a parachute? Not if I won't be needing it, I shouted back. We took, took off in a flash of wind and sound. And climbing with him in a tight spiral, losing him and finding him on our tail like a silent nemesis. In a while, we tired of the game and came down, leaving Bickle up there with the moon just drifting around in his sailplane. By noon, the air was warm, and now and then a desert whirlwind would creep across the desert. These were good signs. The soaring men called them dust devils or thermals. The little funnels of warm air circling at ground level grow wider as they rise, forming a stairway of warm air on which a sailplane can climb a thousand feet a minute. Conditions were favorable. My fantasy was soon to be fulfilled. I was about to become a bird. Now that's that's uh, now that's that's the that's the feeling. Uh, uh, although there is a romantic idea about sailplaning among a lot of people, they think that this is something you can just go out and do. Uh, sailplaning is a highly skilled and uh, can be an extremely dangerous sport too. Although you won't hear much about that. But uh, by the way, for those of you who have been interested in sailplaning and gliding. Uh, there's a lot of confusion among the public about what these terms mean. There's a, there is a difference between a sailplane and a glider. And uh, briefly, it's this, that a glider uh, does that. It glides. In other words, when, when a glider is released by the tow plane, it uh, glides to the earth. Simple as that. Now, it may take longer or it may take shorter to glide, depending on conditions and depending on how good you are and depending on what you want to do. But a glider merely drifts down to the earth at a certain set speed. Now, a sailplane is another another thing entirely, although it's a variation on the same thing, that a sailplane will and literally uh, can, can rise, and it continues to rise, and in fact can, it can attain very respectable altitudes uh, because a sailplane will, will rise off, uh, off its regular course and, in fact, off its tow course off its altitude, by the uh, rise of thermal currents, which are continually rising in the air. This is what many people tend to call bumpy air. When you're, when you're flying in, an, in a regular airplane, you feel these bumps. In many cases, they're thermals. They'll hit various types of bumpy air because, because the air moves around you, you know, in vast, like a vast ocean. It has undercurrents, by the way. It has, uh, it has cross currents. You ever gone swimming in the, in the ocean? Sometimes when the when the surface looks very, you know, little waves, it looks quite calm, and you feel this fantastic undercurrent 
or you'll feel cross currents. Uh, this is this is the way the the ocean of air is that we're in, and so even though it may be invisible, uh, these cross currents, which are not quite the same as winds, don't don't confuse it with winds, because quite often you'll find one cross current at one level and another at another, almost I- identically opposite. So the wind will be say from uh, 90 degrees at ground level. And uh, you, you get up to 500 feet or 1,000 feet, it may come from a totally different direction. And uh, so it, it presents all kinds of interesting experiences. And uh, as a pilot, you, you, you get all the reports, or theoretically all the reports on this kind of thing, what the winds are at different levels. And so you'll, you'll search out the level which gives you the most favorable wind. And so at 4,000 feet, you may have a, a headwind against you which could, of course, use more fuel, slow you up. But at 3,000 feet, the wind could come from a different quarter and even give you, a, 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 give you a, an additional uh, push, uh, or at least it certainly doesn't block your headwind. Now, in the case of sailplaning, this is a, a romantic idea, but a reality which isn't quite as romantic. Uh, it takes a lot of knowledge, a lot of work, a lot of training, and uh, it's an expensive hobby, too, at that, <laughs> sailplaning. Uh, as a pilot, a lot of people ask me these, you know, what about sailplaning, what about gliding? That seems to have caught on with people's sense of imagination. You know, and it's like a lot of things in our day. A lot of things, and I, and I, and I don't want to be the guy who sits in a corner and throws cold water on people's myths and ideas, but a lot of things today have caught people's imagination in a, in a quite unrealistic way. For example, there's a lot of people who have now suddenly developed a romantic concept about the wilderness, mainly because they've seen a lot of wilderness movies. I think the movies have done a lot of this to us. And they see wilderness movies, and they think, gee, wouldn't it be groovy to uh, live for two years in, uh, in the untracked wilderness of, of the North Woods? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what actually happens in reality to these things. Uh, I was up in Alaska here last year, a couple of years ago. In fact, last year when we did the, my TV show up in that area. And they told a very funny story, a very funny, I thought it was very funny, about a bunch of hippies who had gotten the idea that it would be just lovely to live in the, in the, in the untracked wilderness around Juneau, Alaska. Well, they came up there. They, they came up like a great cloud of mosquitoes. It was a whole crowd of them arrived. And, of course, most of most hip types generally are city people. Let's face it, they're really urban kids who have got uh, the deer slayer concept going very strong with them. <laughs> if I may <laughs> touch on uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne here from uh, yeah, the last of the Mohegans, and they, they've, uh, they've, they've, they've read all this stuff, and they've, they've, they've seen endless uh, Gary Cooper movies and endless ecology movies on public television and they don't really talk about the other side of it much in these movies it's always the beauty and all but the beauty wears awfully thin at 12 below zero i'll tell you that and especially when it's 12 below zero for say eight consecutive weeks uh beauty wears awfully thin when the blue flies and the deer flies descend in great black clouds and that's what happened to the kids outside of Juno. <laughs> they arrived up there, and, and just about the time they arrived, it was it was that beautiful uh, Alaskan spring, the early spring and summer, which looks so great on the postcards. 
except for one thing. They don't tell you that, that, the, that the mosquito, the black fly, the deer fly, and the blue bottle fly are absolutely at their finest and most virulent in Alaska. And they can actually kill a person, believe it or not. They can drive him right out of his mind. And uh, many a deer is killed by blue flies and so on, just by a one of the one of the uh, saddest sights of all is to see a moose that's been attacked by thousands of blue flies and his nostrils have been bitten. And he simply is driven to, he can't eat, he's just driven to run by the fantastic itching that just drives him uh, to his death, literally. Ultimately, he gets very thin and, and winds up uh, one day toppling over into the tundra. Well, now, this, this, this reality just never touches on the, the dream life of the kid. Now, the, the reality of a flight is a real thing. I mean, it, it, there's no way to fake your way out of weather. There's no way to fake your way out of a, uh, <laughs> out of a precipitous downdraft at 3,000 feet. Uh, no way. It's like, it's like trying to learn to, to, to fly after you've jumped off a cliff and trying to learn to fly by flapping your arms. There's no way. The law of gravity is inexorable. And so, so the, the dreams that, that people have about these, these, uh, these forms of, of transportation, uh, of sailplaning, living in the wilderness, and so forth, are, are really largely dreams. And in fact, we saw, do you remember here last year, that sad case of those poor people out on Long Island who decided they were going to take a balloon? And they called it the free life. Do you recall that? Wasn't that sad? That, that says something about them right there. Uh, just what they named it. They, they were going to call it the free life. None of them had ever flown on a balloon before, of course. That's, uh, after all, anybody is... Uh, they probably saw three, uh, three showings of around the world in 80 days. And <laughs> with, uh, who was it, David Niven or Quentin Floss or somebody? And they were going to fly around the world. You just jump in the balloon and you go. Well, you recall a sad scene that happened when they uh, apparently came down in the 800 miles north of Newfoundland someplace in that cold, biting sea and were never heard from again. I don't think they even found any, uh, any uh, trace of them, actually. Completely gone. Even though the thing had supposedly been designed to not sink and all that. Forget it, friends. And uh, there it is. And I, I, uh, that's the kind of myth. Uh, and the, the dream. We're all caught up in this thing. Uh, I, I saw a sad a thing up in Maine here recently. Uh, two kids who had come up from New York. These are real romantic kids, and they'd gotten themselves a, a, uh, a an old canoe. Now I'm talking about the real old, the classical type of canvas-covered canoe. You know, with the with the beautiful uh, uh, steam-formed ribs and so on. The old classical canoe of the, of the mid 19th century and early 20th century. And they'd gotten a hold of one of these canoes and had fixed it all up. And uh, they were going to go canoeing in a in a in a river up in Maine, which is a very dangerous river, by the way. Well, they left against everybody's advice, and uh, one week later, one of the bodies washed ashore on an island down there, and they never have found the other uh, because they they uh, they had seen many wonderful, and they'd gone canoeing, of course, many times in Central Park, <laughs> and they knew all about that. <laughs> and and uh, this is the kind of myth and dream that you run into uh, and, and everywhere you go in, in these places and, and uh, you, you run into it as a pilot you know that a friend of mine is a is a top instructor in flying 
and uh, he's been he's been instructing now ever since uh, he was a he was an instructor in fighter planes back in uh, 1950 51 and uh, he's fine instructor and uh, we got talking one day about people who come out to try to learn to fly and of course a lot of people will read an ad in a magazine or something and they go oh wouldn't it be groovy then just think we could fly up to the ski resort every weekend we could do you know it's just like it's like learning to drive a car you know it's just great so we'll run out and we'll jump on our plane and we'll fly up there and we'll fly here and there and he said that that out of out of a hundred people who begin flying lessons i'm giving you a few facts here but out of the hundred people roughly in his experience less than one ever finally gets his private pilot's license and becomes a qualified pilot. He's licensed by the federal government as a, and, and, and can carry passengers. Don't confuse a student license with a, a private pilot's license. And he says less than one actually gets it. And I said, well, what happens to the other 99? He said, well, I'll tell you. The other 99, he said, there's a lot of reasons. Many of them find it's too expensive. Uh, there's a great crew uh, that, that uh, just simply gets tired of everything. He says they try anything for five minutes and then they drift off. He said, but there is another large group of people who come out and are suddenly hit with the reality of flying that they have to learn all this navigation, which <laughs> involves a lot of mathematics. What? What? I never thought about that, you know. They ha and incidentally, you have to learn this in, in uh, sail planning. Uh, they have to learn all kinds of, of technical weather uh weather reading and meteorological uh, information that uh, tends to get not only very difficult, it tends to get dull uh, to learn. And he said within a short time, he said, you can see them sitting in the plane. He said, Taking, uh, they, they love to go up with you. He says, they love to fly with you and uh, pretend like they're flying. He says, you let them handle a control for about five minutes. They think they're flying. He's, but that, then you can see the glaze in the eye begin to form as soon as you start talking about wind triangles and you talk about you talk about drift and you talk about fuel consumption and all the rest that you have to learn. And he said and their eyes dripped over and he says, and sure enough, within a short time they don't come back. Then, in other words, they're learning the realities of a thing starts hitting you, and there are realities up in that air. But uh, one of the one of the uh, one of the most romantic places in our time. And I think ultimately, by the year 2000, maybe by the year 2500, it may take that long, possibly less, maybe by the year 2000, people will look upon the, the, the airports, and I'm not talking about the big uh, terminals. Again, remember, I'm talking about airports, the little, the little airports that lie dotted over the country, and you can see them th by the thousands on uh, charts and maps. You know, they're disappearing almost almost uh, astronomically today, almost logarithmically. Did you know that? And the reason is, of course, again, the, that same old bugaboo that's uh, hitting everything else in our life, population explosion. It takes a pretty good piece of untroubled ground to make an airport. In other words, uh, about the minimum runway strip that is practical in, in today's usage of uh, fairly fast private aircraft is around, uh, about the minimum really, is around 3,000 feet. Well, figure out, 3,000 feet is, is, uh, is well, a mile is 5,280 feet, so that's uh, the better part of a mile. And that's a lot of untroubled ground. And it can't be just a narrow strip, it's, it's got to be surrounded with open country fairly well. And so the airport is becoming almost a thing of the past, sa uh, sadly enough. 
uh, and airports are are disappearing in all the major areas because of the need for ground for housing projects. The ground has gotten very valuable, and so it, it uh, it's it's almost an extravagance to have this kind of ground laying around, and so the the airports are gradually disappearing. And I would su- suggest this: by the year 2000, little airports will be preserved, will actually be historical sites, just the way. Uh, we today preserve historical seaports, like the Mystic Seaport up in Connecticut. is is It's restored. If you've never gone up there, really, it's a great trip. You should go up there. It's uh, this beautiful seaport. You ever been up there, Herb? Oh, that's that's a trip you should take. You've been up there, Jerry? You haven't? Can't believe it. I can't believe it with you two. The Mystic Seaport, which is only about 100 miles north here, just right up the Connecticut Turnpike. It lies on the uh, Connecticut coast, and uh, it's just beautiful. Mystic Seaport is a, is a seaport that uh, is an old seaport. It goes all the way back to the itself, actually, the 17th century, the late 17th, early 18th century, and they've restored it, and uh, the, the, the seaport lays there, and it's really worth a trip, believe me. And a lot of the old, the old ships are there, that uh, have been have been brought in from various other places have been restored and they lay right there and, and incidentally in in this seaport this is a suggestion for those of you out there it's a good suggestion for this time of the year if you're looking for a place to go and you've never been there in fact even if you have been there you probably go all the time then it's one of those places you go back to if you've never been up there look up mystic connecticut just look it up uh... for one thing they have they have a great restaurant there in which they serve early American food that was uh, served at this time, back in the 18th century, early 18th century, in a house, the actual house, it's been restored, that was the house of a famous sea captain of that period who sailed out of Mystic, Connecticut. It's part of that museum there. They also have sail lofts there, where, where they, they've removed a complete sail loft, where they used to make sails up in places like Massachusetts and Connecticut, and they brought it down, and they've set it up there, and it's all there, and you can smell the rope. And it's, a really, it's really a great place. And if you've never been up there, you should really go. The Charles W. Morgan, it's one of the last of the great whaling ships, is uh, there, and uh, just sitting there quietly, a lot of other ships. Now, I suggest that by... The year 2000, that will begin to happen with airports. We're too close now to the beginning of aviation to actually appreciate the the great revolution that aviation has brought about in our life. Now, don't immediately. I'm going to I'm going to head you head you off at the pass, gang. Don't start inundating me with clippings about about uh, Cole Palin's uh, airport up in <laughs> up in New York. I'm going to get all that stuff about World War One. It's not what I'm talking about. That's that's something else. There's a little of the circus about that that uh, I'm not even involved in. So don't immediately send me clippings about Cole Palin's airport. I don't want to hear any more about it. Uh, but I'm talking about little airports around the country that uh, have their own curious uh, uh, historical romance to them. Uh, I'll give you uh, uh, I'll give you a bit of trivia here. Where did Li- where did Lindbergh sail out of? What? That is correct. What is that field now? That's right. Uh, there's a great shopping center out on Long Island where uh, Lindbergh and a lot of other famous flights took off Roosevelt Field, 
Uh, you see, this is what's happening to all the great airports. Uh, it would be like as if we took uh, Cape Kennedy and, uh, you know, made it into a, uh, a Great Eastern. <laughs> It'll be a historical site one day. It, it has to be that the, that the original shots out into space took place right here. The first men took off here. And that site itself will be historical like New Bedford is as a seaport. And I think one day you'll find people will be preserving the airports. You know, I, I'll never forget an airport that, that I flew into once in, in, uh, in Florida. It was really something. It's a fantastic feeling. And this has nothing to do with nostalgia, so don't come on and lay the nostalgia thing on me. We're talking about history here. A lot of people confuse history and nostalgia, and I, and I think that's a, a sad uh, misconception. In other words, Gettysburg is a historical site. Uh, the old Paramount Theater is a nostalgic site. Those are two different things, right? So uh, I flew into this airport in uh, central Florida, in the, in the middle of Florida, nothing around there, just, just this grass strip. And there were cows at one end of the airport. You flew into this airport, and here was a hangar sitting there that must have been built. It had to have been built. The classical hangar design, you know, with that rounded roof and the whole bit, you know, the big windsock sitting up on top there, and a faded sign above it. You know, the sign was faded out like uh, Ace Murphy's uh, flying service. You could just see the wings, the gold wings all faded out. And she's sitting there in this airport. And we, we taxied around and came up. In this very modern, by the way, airplane, this airplane is extremely modern. We taxied up to this, this, uh, this hangar, and got out. You could hear birds and crickets, and in the in the uh, in the hangar were these uh, <laughs> collection of airplanes. I'd never seen anything like it. It was fantastic. I mean, a collection of uh, of old uh, cloth-covered aircraft that were all flying. This was not a museum. These guys were flying them in this area. And this is this, this, the airplanes. One was owned by the druggist who came in every day and flew his Aronka C3. And another guy flew his old J2 Cub. And there they were all sitting there. And you could smell the dope and stuff. And there were a couple of big wooden props on the back there. And, and I thought to myself, well, one day this, this place should be preserved, you know, because it was the beginning of man's moments when he first left the earth. Uh, and this, this was historical, even in, in many ways, more so than, say, Cape Kennedy is, because it was the beginning of all this sort of thing. And I think that one day, the, uh, the mystery and the curious romance, uh, the odd, uh, the odd, and, and uh, you can only say it, it's, it's the, the odd, bittersweet, uh, uh, the word goes even beyond romance that hangs around many airports. It's a, a, a kind of quiet yearning for something above the earth, to leap above. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's a strange feeling. And if you've, if you've ever touched that feeling, you understand it. To many of you, what I'm saying probably makes no sense whatsoever. It doesn't have any meaning. Just like, and I'm sure that those same people would find very little meaning in a thing like uh, Mystic Connecticut and the Charles W. Morgan quietly sipping at a birth forever a great whaling ship and the last of the great whaling ships and that smell of dope that 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 the smell of grass and, and old fabric and wood when man first rose yeah <laughs> uh, this is wor new york now it comes with the news with john scott
good evening. It's 11 o'clock. This is John Scott reporting for Lester Smith. Alabama Governor George Wallace has won the Democratic presidential primaries in Maryland and Michigan. Among Democrats, the Maryland victory is most significant since crossover voting is not permitted in that state. So far, with 69% of the Maryland vote reported, Wallace had 43%, or 165,000 votes. Minnesota Senator Hubert Humphrey and South Dakota Senator George McGovern both have 23% of the Maryland primary vote. Humphrey has 90,000 votes, McGovern 88,000. There are 53 national convention delegates at stake, with the winner of the popular primary vote in each of Maryland's eight congressional districts getting the delegates committed to him. In Michigan, where crossover voting is permitted, Wallace has 48% of the vote, McGovern 25%, and Humphrey 19. This is with 32% of Michigan's districts reporting. A prime issue, of course, in Michigan is the busing of school children to balance student bodies racially. Wallace campaigned fiercely against busing in Michigan. There are 132 Democratic National Convention delegates from Michigan to be pledged to candidates in proportion to the vote won in today's preferential primary. The last medical bulletin today from Holy Cross Hospital, Silver Spring, Maryland, is that Wallace was off the critical list, but after consultation between Wallace's personal physician and a neurological specialist from the University of Alabama, it was determined further surgery will be required. The object of main concern is removal of a bullet that's touching Wallace's spine. There is some paralysis of his legs, but that's not yet been deemed permanent by consulting or attending physicians. Hospital Administrator Tom Burke read part of today's statement from consulting doctors Hamilton Hudson and J.D. Galbraith. We are-